Luke, or pardon me, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to talk about a passage here of when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about praying at Gethsemane. Matthew 26, we'll read verses 36 to 44. Matthew 26, verses 36 to 44 is what we'll read. Here we go. It says there, Matthew 26, the Bible says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep. And saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, Thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. This passage talks about what we would know as a garden and a prayer. And in, in here in Gilbert, over off of Guadalupe between... Lindsay and Val Vista on the south side of Guadalupe, there's a church that has an outside praying garden. I haven't been to it. I've driven by it. And it's like there's some outside seating, small area, uh, some foliage there. And here's a garden that Jesus is at. They called it Gethsemane. It was probably at the, from what we understand, it was at the foot of what would be called the Mount of Olives, where he often, uh, well, he often went here, actually. In the Mount of Olives, he taught there, not far from a, uh, the whole events of Calvary. There was a brook called Kidron in that area that they had to cross over before they'd get here. By the way, they said at this time of year, a lot of blood was flowing through the brook Kidron because they're bleeding Passover lambs. He was about to be one. <clears throat> so Jesus is at a garden, and he's not picking fruit and pulling grapes and taking plucking olives. It's more of a heavy moment. Now, in the big picture, 
of Jesus' life, he knew he came into the world for this moment, to come to this moment. He knew that he was born not to end it in a parade and a, um, you know, big old celebration and he dies a nice peaceful death. He knew it, that's not what it was. He knew he came into the world to end, end and then resurrect, but end in a, in a rough way, the, the hardest you could have it. But and nevertheless, he lived 33 years. He lived uh, 30, we only see a few glimpses of his life between age zero and 30, a few brief glimpses. We'll look at one of those tonight about him at age 12. But by age 30, around age 30 till about age 33, he was publicly seen and known and heard. And sometimes as he went about his life in Israel, uh, you know, he, he got, of course, he gathered his disciples, the 12, and then there, be, then there came more disciples. The, the early church started, started with 120. And so there came more disciples, and that would probably swell and shrink and swell and shrink. And then there was bigger crowds. And so he, he was around a lot of people at times, and he was around smaller groups and then a real small group. So he goes three years, and he does what he was supposed to do, teach and preach and tell people the kingdom of God is offered to them, and the Jews rejected it basically because they rejected him. But nevertheless, he taught and preached and healed and um, began to build his church because that was the plan B in a sense since they were rejecting the kingdom and resume a kingdom later. So he, builds his, he begins building his church through these 12 disciples. And, but as he's talking even to those 12 disciples, he said, we're going to be going to Jerusalem and he says it a couple times in this book, you know, they're excited following him and they're wondering perhaps why isn't everybody else, but hey, they're following him. They know he's a Christ, the son of the living God. Who else are we going to go to? They're following Jesus. And, but he says, you know, the son of man's going to, we've got to go to Jerusalem and I need to be, I'm going to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners, be crucified and rise again the third day. And at one point, and Peter's like, that's, no, that's not part of the plan, Lord. That's not what we're going to do. And he has this confrontation with Peter. And then a couple other times, Jesus tells him again, I'm going to, we're going to Jerusalem, I'll be betrayed in the hands of sinners, I'm going to give my life a ransom for all. And they're kind of like, okay, whatever. They weren't really paying attention. They were just, it wasn't sinking in. And even a few times, he said, as the Scripture says, this is going to happen. It's almost like, oh, uh, you know, maybe we need to read that part of it. But they weren't really, it wasn't really sinking in, this was really going to happen. So now it's really going to happen, and now he's coming to this point this moment where it's, it's, they just did the Lord's table. They actually celebrated Passover in chapter 26 here. Uh, right after, on the heels of Passover, which is a Jewish holiday prescribed by Scripture, on the heels of that, he showed them the Lord's table, symbolic breaking of his body, his blood unfermented, juice representing pure blood. They ate and drank. Even then, he's saying, my body's going to be broken. This is a new covenant I have right now with everybody. And then Judas excuses himself. He's getting ready to betray him here in a few moments after this garden scene. But here they are. He's in this night here, and, and uh, they even sang a hymn after they um, had the Lord's table. They went out and uh, told Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. These guys might, but I won't. All right, Peter, you'll see. And now, and now here they are that's coming down to this verse 36. Then cometh Jesus under the place called Gethsemane. So three years of ministry is coming down to this moment, this moment, this night, and he's in this place called Gethsemane. You know what it means? He's at the olive press, the 
place called the olive press. It's a place where there's pressing. Take the olives. I don't know what olive press looks like, but I can figure it presses. And stuff comes out that's valuable. And we put our, on our pasta, right? So he's at the place of the press. And what's happening here is he's getting his own press. It's starting to press on him. So he's at the, the place called Gethsemane. So Jesus had, he had the large group. He had been around crowds of people. Then he had been around kind of the larger general congregation of disciples. Most of the time he was around the twelve. And here he is with the twelve. And even the twelve he detracts from and takes the three. And then from the three he's just by himself. And you see this very intense moment that we're going to try to relate called the prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this entire thing here, just to say a couple of things about this prayer that we read, and we're going to break in, go into it more. What's happening here, it's so intense because Jesus, is, again, is, we'll see more, I'll tell you more reasons why it's intense, but Jesus is basically by himself and he's anticipating something that he's never experienced humanly. He's anticipating being forsaken by his Father temporarily. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, perfect unity. But there's a certain separation momentarily of the Father from the Son so that the Son can bear, be a sin bearer. How many of us want to bear a bunch of junk of people? Here, give me all your junk. How about I carry your sewer around? How about, how about you throw all of your, your, your manure on me? How about, you, how about you just give me, you know, all the worst stuff, and I'll just, I'll just clean out all your junk in, 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 your, in your sewer tank? You know, we don't want that. Well, that's what Jesus is taking on, the sewage of the sin of the world. He's going to be the sin bearer. And he's going to be, there's this, it's hard to understand, a mysterious, he says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? There's a separation. And he's anticipating this. And it's not easy. Difficult. What's happening here, three things. The third thing is what we're going to speak on. What, here's what's happening in this. The point of this whole Gethsemane scene where Jesus is coming, detaching from the disciples and praying, and it's intense, and he prays three times and finds them sleeping. The whole thing is, is displaying three things that I see, and the third we'll speak about. It's showing his true humanity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't born a superman. He was very God, God of very God, God of very God, taking on flesh and blood, sinless, but also it's developed. We're going to look at this tonight. He developed. He, he learned obedience by the things he suffered, it says in Hebrews 5:8. He learned. He experienced things in as much as God in the flesh could experience things. And so he, you see his humanity sweating, <laughs> his humanity under intensity, not his humanity fighting back sinfully, but you see his humanity uh, under pressure. Even, it doesn't say it in this gospel, I think it's Luke who's the doctor, talks about him sweating as it were great drops of blood, and there's a medical term for that, which I don't know what it is, but it's a rare, rare thing. All right? So we see there's this point of this story here of Jesus praying in the garden. We're seeing a picture of his humanity. We're also seeing 
the most important thing is we're seeing that he, he does accept this cup. He does accept this cup. Now, I'm going to quickly describe it. He prays to the Father, Father, if it be, if it be, can, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about some symbolic thing. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Then he prayed the second time, if this cup cannot pass from me except I drink it, it can't leave me this moment in front of me unless I drink it, okay, then thy will be done. But then he prayed it again the third time. In other words, can this pass? If it can't pass, then thy will be done. The cup, to, to, if we were to prepare the symbolic thing of the cup, it wasn't an actual cup sitting there on the ground of the garden. It's a symbolic issue. And to interpret it correctly, you just use the rest of the Scripture before it to interpret it. And the interpretation is God's wrath is likened unto a cup. A full, or no, it's likened to a cup full. A cup full of something is likened unto God's wrath about to be poured out on deserving criminals. <laughs> Pour that on them. A cup of God's wrath poured out. And so God's wrath needed to be addressed for humanity. God, the, humanity, every, humanity, like each and every one of us, sin. And don't start comparing yourself to somebody. You, in and of yourself, sin. And forget if this guy's more or this guy's less. That doesn't matter. We all have incurred a level of God's justice, God's wrath on me for sinning. I broke His law. Something's, a fine's got to be paid. And in all of those fines of every human that's ever lived and ever sinned, it's com it compiles into a cup of God's wrath. Who's going to take care of this thing? Because humans can't do it. These humans that have so much sin can't bail themselves out of their own sin. It's kind of like a person with dirty hands trying to clean his own clothes. He can't, just can't do it. Somebody come clean me. <laughs> and that's what it is. Somebody come take care of this wrath. And so it, the, the taking care of the sin of the world is so hard Jesus says, can this pack? Can we get around this? You know? And if we can't, the only way to get around this is to have me drink it, then I'll drink it. And so what he does, he's about to go, in other words, after this threshold moment of the Gethsemane, Gethsemane he goes through the whole interrogation of different leaders and gets to the cross. It's basically saying, I'm going to fully accept. When he prays, thy will be done. He's saying, I fully accept going there and drinking down on the cross the wrath of God, every last drop. So he drank the wrath of God, every last drop of it dry, but it means nothing to you unless you believe on him. If you believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible teaches that that means every last drop of God's wrath is been digested and God has not one drop of wrath he will put on you because it was taken care of in Christ there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus it says that who is he that condemns it's God that justifies so we're not condemned if we trust Jesus Christ because he after this he went to the cross so it shows his humanity. It shows that he accepted the cup. But also, number three, here's the thing, and here's our, this is our message, and I'll, I'll try to be at a good pace for us this morning. Here's what we want to learn today. Praying at Gethsemane, what this is teaching us, what I think this is teaching us, is in this moment, Christ shows us how to approach God, especially in times of pressing. 
in a Gethsemane moment. Okay, what is this passage teaching today? It's teaching a couple things, but for us, it's showing us how to approach God when I come to a Gethsemane, Gethsemane of my own. I'll never have this type that he had. I'll never have that. They're not, no. In fact, I can't be separated from God. And I won't bear the sins of a whole world. I may bear temporary stings of my own sin in this life. All right, whatever. But I'll have pressing things. I'll have a garden of Gethsemane, a pressing moment, a hard moment. Moments. So what do you do when you have a Gethsemane? What do you do when you have a time where everybody's kind of like filtering away from you and you're by yourself? What do you do? (laughs) Well, you pray. He's praying at the garden. Now, the question is, how did he pray? And that's our message. How did Jesus pray at his Gethsemane? I'll tell you the points. I'll just tell all five points right now. We see that he has a solitary prayer. We see that he has a humble prayer. We see he has a familial prayer. That means it's a family chat. We see he has a um, can't even read my writing here. Continual prayer. It's persistent. And then we see he has a yielding prayer. So what we're doing now, the rest of our time, like we talk about this garden, now what are we doing, Pastor? The rest of our time is we're seeing Jesus handled this moment of pressure through prayer, and let's see what type of prayer he had in this moment of pressure. And there's five descriptions of it. Number one, we see in a, in a Gethsemane, Jesus had a solitary prayer, and that's what we need to have at times like that. All right, so let's look at this. Look at verse 39. He went a little further, it says, Verse 39, he went a little further and prayed, fell on his face and prayed. Again, I want to illustrate to you the scriptures that you read, how alone he is, how solitary he is. Look at verse 36, then cometh he, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane and saith unto the disciples, that would be actually the 11, Judas is gone, sit here while I go and pray yonder. So there's the 12 are sitting, or the 11 are sitting. But then, he wait a minute, verse 37, what does he do? He takes with him what? Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's uh, James and John. And he began to be very, to be sorrowful, verse 37 says, and very heavy. You see that? Verse 38, then he saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. It's not just sorrowful, it's beyond that. Even unto death, tarry ye here and watch with me. Verse 39, and he went a little further and fell on his face. Now, again, I, want to, I said this a moment ago, but I want you to follow me. Jesus was used to being around the general public. Then the general group of disciples, the audience that were believers, most of the time he was with the 12. Sometimes he would pull away and be with the three. He invested the three leaders, the inner circle. Here he went from the, ha- the 12, actually the 11. Judas excused himself. He says, guys, just sit down here. I'm going to go pray yonder. Peter, James, John, come here. And he brings them. And then he tells them, when he says, watch with me, the other gospels are showing that it's saying, pay attention and pray. Pay attention and pray. This is kind of a, a pivotal moment. Because, by the way, uh, some authorities are going to come in, and they needed to be ready for that moment. And they weren't. Watch with me, Peter, James, John, 
especially you, James and John, you guys are sons of thunder, you know. Peter, we don't know what you're going to say, so just get ready for this, okay? You need to watch and pray. So, so the big crowd, the, the disciples, uh, the three, and then he has to even go away from them. I, I think one of the Gospels says maybe a stone's throw away or something like that. But so maybe like from here to the wall, you know, the back wall but over there, uh, the church. And so he leaves them and he goes further. And, of course, I would think that, um, I don't know if they heard him. They may have. I mean, sometimes you got a grove, you have trees that kind of absorb sound. But he went yonder and prayed. So he is by himself praying. He is in a solitary place of prayer, detached. We need, especially in times of trial, solitary prayer. Now, times of family prayer, we need that. Times of church prayer, we need that. Times of, uh, you know, maybe a couple of people, a small group, we need that. That's okay. But sometimes you have to hammer out things alone with God. When it's only Him listening. Now, again, I'm not dismissing us praying in public and all that stuff. But is that the only time you ever pray? When somebody's around? And when you're in a Gethsemane, you'll realize, I need to just be by myself sometimes. All right, the Lord was in a solitary, but this is a hard part. Now, the hard side to this solitude was this. He was in a solitary place of prayer, but I also want you to notice that he was in a solitary, he was solitary in his passion. He was solitary in his passion. He, told, he tells the, the 11, he says, sit here while I go and pray. And he brings three with them, and he, he basically asks them to pray. And then he goes and has these three very difficult moments of prayer. After the first time, he comes back and like, they're sleeping. Yeah. Guys, couldn't you watch one hour with me? You know, in this moment, within this hour is what he's saying. Come watch and pray. I know the flesh is weak, spirit's willing, but watch and pray. And he goes and prays again, comes back, <laughs> they're snoring. Ugh. Goes back the third time, prays. And then it's funny, he says, all right, sleep on now, it's okay. Oh, get up now, get up now, is what he says. He says both, you know. Rise, time to be going. And we didn't, we're not going to preach that part. But here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. So Jesus is by himself hammering this out. But, he, but he's really by himself even in a hard way, because watch this. Nobody cares what he's praying about. They don't care. Can you pray with me about this? This is tough. And they're, well, you say, well, they're kind of tired, it's hard. It still feels like nobody cares. He's alone in his care. Sometimes you can share a prayer request with people, and that's fine. We need to uh, confess our faults one to another and pray for one another to maybe heal. But there's sometimes where somebody's just, they don't care about my prayer request. I'm the only one praying for this. Well, welcome to Jesus' Gethsemane moment. You're not alone in that sense. Get the fellowship of his suffering. So here we're learning here. We, sometimes we need a little... Um, Go alone with God. Go alone with God. It's not a bad thing. Number two, what else is a description here of his prayer that we can relate with? We can relate with a solitary prayer, which is needed, but also a humble prayer. Notice what it says there in verse 39. He went a little further and simple few words there. Fell on his face. Fell on his face. He, he did not have some kind of you know, picturesque pose. Whoa. 
You know, he fell on his face. He may have looked really um, sad, but that's what he had to do. I mean, it's a... Ah, just trying to imagine this. Fall on his face, prostrate out like that. He's literally down to earth, right? And, um, wow. If my master would do... Now, he's our master, right? Here, so let's, let's imagine we're watching Gethsemane. He's there, falling on his face. That's my master down there. Who am I? I'm his servant. Would I ever do that? Would I ever, or am I always going to be greater than my master? No, if my master would do that in such a moment, what shall, my, what shall his servant do the same, perhaps more often? So he's showing humility being <laughs> as if it wasn't humbling enough to contain himself to flesh and blood and time and space and walk the earth and be forsaken. He's showing further humility in this. Spurgeon said humility gives us a good foothold in prayer. That's because Peter said that, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Gives you a good foothold that He may exalt you in due time. He's on His face. He's literally down to earth praying. And that's all right. That's okay. I'm not saying every day you fall apart and just go like, oh, i got to, you know, afflict myself every day, every moment. You, you sit down at McDonald's for, to have a meal instead of bowing. You just go, oh, I'm supposed to do like Jesus did. You know? No, no, we're not talking about that. We're just saying it's okay to, to on times when it's hard, times when it's uh, Gethsemane, Gethsemane you're, you're having to face something that there's an unexperienced outcome you're afraid of. <laughs> you haven't done it before. Yeah, that's a safe place to be. That's how. Number three, familial prayer. His prayer is familiar, and that's how ours should be. Now, familial, we have that. Familial means it's family. It's a family chat. It means that this talk is related to not business. It's related father, son, son, father. It's family talk. He says, verse 39, Oh, my father. He says, oh, my father again, verse 42. Oh, my father again, verse 44. Let's look at a couple of verses that we have. You can hold your place. Look at Matthew 6, 9. How does this relate to me? Well, Jesus told us those that have believed him truly in their heart, if you've believed on the Lord and you've been saved, you've been born again, you can say that. If you've not truly been saved or born again, you can't honestly say what I'm about to show you. You can't honestly say this disciple's prayer. Matthew 6, 9, Jesus is teaching a true believer how to pray. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does Jesus teach his believing disciples to pray? Pray, tell him, don't say, you can say God, but he's not, you can say, Father, wow, how much, more how much more of a close term can right. you say to somebody superior to you? How much more of a benevolent Father? <laughs> Can't get any better than that. You can get a little more, there's another Abba Father, you can say that, that's similar. Jesus told us, pray that. Look at chapter 7, verse 9, when speaking about prayer, Matthew 7, 9 
Jesus said, Or what man is there of you of whom if his son ask bread, he will give, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Jesus, again, is just pointing out the, the child privilege that we have when we pray. We are in a son-daughter privilege when we pray. Um, it's not, you know, so how did that, how was that created? So Galatians says this, Galatians 4, verse 4 to 7, I'm going to read that one as well. It says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And then it says, Wherefore thou art no more a servant... Pardon me. No, he says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ." It's saying God sent His Son to die for us so that we can become sons. We're adopted. We're adopted. We used to be rebellious subjects in His kingdom. Huh? That's right. Running around, breaking the laws of His country. And coming to Jesus Christ, He adopts us. We're adapted into the family is what it means. We're adopted into His family, and now we're sons, it says. And now we can cry, Abba, Father, even like a childish way of saying it. Spirit of His Son in your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, you have a stronghold in the... Listen to these words. Listen to this. You have a stronghold in the day of trial to plead your adoption. You have no rights as a subject, for you have forfeited them by your treason. But nothing can forfeit a child's right to a father's protection. Be not afraid then to say, my... Father, hear my cry. Familial prayer. We can, that's how we pray. Lord, you're my dad. You're my daddy. Number four, continual prayer. It's persistent. He prays three times. Verse 39, verse 42, verse 44. He prays three times. Prays three times. Now, we're going to talk about the fact that but he didn't get what he prayed. Uh, yes and no. But he prays as a continual prayer. He prays three times. The Bible does say to pray continually. It gives a good example of one guy. I love Job verses chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Job, very wealthy man. God bless him with a lot of wealth. And like, was it six, what, seven boys, three girls, lots of servants. And he's, from what we can understand at the beginning of the book of Job, it introduces us to this man who, he is wealthy, but better than that, he's a God-fearing man. Fears God and eschews. Not just a God-fearing man, he acts like it. He actually eschews evil. And he has this large family, and it says, you know, these kids, they went out, and there's a season of life where the kids were each going, doing parties at each other's houses and feasts. And during that time, Job was like, you know what, I'm going to pray for my kids every day. They might be up to some mischief, just in case. Job would get up every single day and offer these sacrifices for his kids. Continually he did that. Like, just in case my kids are like, you know doing some bad stuff. I'm going to intercede for them before God. Every morning he'd get up early and do some kind of sacrifice, obviously a prayer, interceding for his kids. 
And, uh, and then it says he did it continually. So somehow, in some continual way, he was always praying for his kids. And even though he did that, they were taken in a trial. He was given more children, but he prayed continually, and it was righteous, and it was right. And God says to pray continually. Colossians 4.2 says, continue in prayer and watch. You're praying? Watch what you're praying for. The same with thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> Jesus told a parable in Luke 18.1, then spake he this parable to, to them that, that, uh, they, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And he says there was in a city this unjust judge, and there was a widow in the city who had come to the judge, and she said, you know what, I have been mistreated, Mr. Judge, and this person mistreated me here, and this person mistreated me here, and would you please give me some justice? And the judge is like, yeah, whatever, whatever. He's an unjust judge. He wasn't good. And so this lady, put, this lady turned it up. She kept coming to him and asking him, Make, can you bring me justice in, my, in my, my court case here? I'm being mistreated here. Or I have somebody owe me something here. And she's going after him and going after him and going after this judge. The honest, a good judge would have settled it right then and there. But he's a bad judge. He's a bad judge. And so he's putting her off, whatever, whatever. And then finally he tells somebody, probably one of his administrative assistants, he's like, I'm tired of this lady. Her continually coming unto me is wearying me. I'm just going to give her what she wants. She's going to kill me, you know, by, in, from, in my ears. And so, and the problem's not her, the problem's him. But Jesus said, so basically, basically saying, you know, God's a better judge than this. But go to him more often. Just keep going. And, and the point is, is to pray continually. One prayer for this lady, one prayer didn't do it. And sometimes for us, one prayer doesn't get the answer. But I think... More than one prayer could either get the answer of the grace of the... We get the grace of an answered prayer or you get the grace of accepting the alternative. Paul tried this. 2 Corinthians 12, For this I besought the Lord thrice, that my thorn thing that was bugging him in the flesh would depart from me. And thrice the Lord said, no, my grace is enough for thee. Gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it's either this. Going to God repetitively in prayer is a win-win scenario of grace. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. In other words, if I go to God and I have a request and I'm asking and I'm asking, I'll either get it or I'll get grace to not have it. I mean, that's not all I can. That's a hall I can wrap my brain around when I see the scripture there. And Jesus is saying, "Let this cup pass. Let this cup pass." But He also prayed, "Let Thy will be done." And God, I believe, enabled Him to go forward after this. The Bible says an angel came. One of the other gospels came and strengthened Him. You know that an angel came. Ministers of God, angels are spirits. Ministering spirits showed up, strengthened Jesus, gave Him grace to go through the cross. So a continual prayer, and then number five, a yielding prayer. Verse 39b, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Look at verse 42. At the end, O my soul, O my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. So as he's praying, he's yielding. He's yielding. He's able to resign in prayer. He's able to take his hands off the wheel. 
I heard somebody say, you know, if you want to pray like this, this is not a bad thing. Do you know that? If you want to sing like this, it's not a bad thing, too. Don't hit anybody. It's okay. But especially if you pray, you know, I think people in the Bible, there's some scenes in the Bible that are going like this. If that's what you want to do, fine. But let it really represent what's in your heart. I'm really open-handed, God. I'm really open. This is not a bad, even if you just go like this, this is not a bad thing because you're saying no agenda. I'm not holding on to anything. In fact, I'll receive something. And that's in, a, in spirit what Jesus is saying is, thy will be done. Okay. It's a yielding. Not his hands aren't on the wheel. Um, you know, one guy said, uh, Christians often get fussy about contemporary issues, about how much of this and how much for and how, how much, how for, uh, how much, how close and how often we can participate in certain questionable things. Christians often get fussy about that. Types of music, casual drinking, tattoos, facial jewelry on men, going to casinos, smoking marijuana. In 20 years, these things will be, there will be another 20 things to question. He says, but as a person, but, but before a person can answer the question, should I do this, this, and that, a person should first honestly ask themselves, should I do whatever I want? The answer is no. The question should be, should I be willing to do whatever I find God wants? Yes. Answer that question ahead of time. And then he says, prayer will help put that question in place. Prayer will help put that spirit in place. Say this, say thy will be done in your prayers in some way. It makes a difference also in what tone you say it. Say it with the accent of perfect trust. Yeah, that's good. Second, or Charles Spurgeon said also on this text, he said, yield and God yields grace. Let it be as God wills and God will determine for the best. Be thou content to leave thy prayer, have a prayer, but leave thy prayer in his hands who knows when to give and what to give and, with what, and what to withhold. So then, so pleading earnestly, persistently, and with humility and resignation, Thou shalt surely prevail, he says. Jesus, I like this passage because Jesus didn't lead, Jesus didn't run. You feel, this is what I like about this. He's going to the garden, he's alone, and he, you see him praying this three times. We can relate with that, can't we? Oh, I'm going to ask again. Oh, I'm going to ask again. We can relate with that feeling of pressure. And, and yet he accepts it. And he goes and does the hard thing. Do you remember, um, what was it called? The I got it written down here, the Costa Concordia cruise ship. Remember that about 10 years ago? Cruise ship in the Mediterranean. Got too close to somewhere around Italy or Greece. I don't remember what was that. This was like a, this was a $400 million luxury cruise liner. Gets too close to the coast and... Um, hits something and it starts to turn side, list sideways and it's partially submerged. I don't think it went all the way down, did it? I don't think it did, but it, but, but it caused damage and caused lives. And uh, during that incident, the big problem was the captain left the ship. And that's a no-no. I mean, I would not want to be a captain because you basically, want, if you're going to be a captain, it, one of the things it means is 
last off the ship at any cost. So after hitting the rocks and going in peril, people scrambled to get in lifeboats and just going crazy, right? Some people were stuck. One of the jobs as a captain is to know, that, know where everybody is, make sure they get off, and if they don't, know how many are left. And you just got to stay there and at your own, even if it means your own death. So people are getting off. Some are getting into lifeboats. Well, this guy, Captain, uh, I think is Greg, Gregorio Del Faco is his name. Captain Gregorio. He said, quote, I fell into a lifeboat. That means... It was translated back to the Italian Coast Guard. Oh, he abandoned ship. Well, when he did that, there was still... This, and during this process, when he fell into the lifeboat, he was communicating, he ended up communicating with the captain of a... Uh, um, of a, um, a I'm sorry, I got the guy's name wrong. It, the, the captain's... That's the wrong name, so remember this. I told you the wrong guy. It's Francesco. Is, Francesco's the guy that abandoned ship. Gregorio, Captain Gregorio, these are first names. He's the, right, he's the Italian Coast Guard uh, commander. That's who he is. So Francesco, I fell into the lifeboat. Captain Gregorio, the Italian Coast Guard commander, was on radio or phone. He said, you, quote, you go up that pilot ladder, get on that ship, and tell me how many people are still on board. Is that clear? He didn't. Now, it's easy for me to be like, he should have done it. It's easy for me to say that, but it'd be hard, wouldn't it? But he shouldn't have never left. Aren't you glad? Now, here's the point. I'm putting you in a fearful scenario. Oh, I got to stay on the boat. Or I got off the boat and I need to go back on and run into my death. Yeah. How about this? Jesus did not fall into the lifeboat. He became the lifeboat. Isn't that good? He didn't take a lifeboat. He says, all right, I'll be the lifeboat. That's what he did. At Gethsemane, that's what he's saying. So sometimes we have to come to, you know, you're, I'll just tell you a couple things. I mean, for me, I remember a couple times my son, one of my couple of moments with my boys, it was like a Gethsemane moment, or even with my girls, where one of the times, am I telling you this? I'll try to make it brief. Telling you this might not mean anything to you, but one time I was so pressed for Michael, my son Michael. He was probably... He actually, he ended up having surgery on his birthday. I think it was 13 or 14. When he, long story short, he swallowed something. It was basically like, it, it wasn't a button. You know those squeezy toys, like a, a cheap toy at the, the, the fair you went and it goes like that? Somehow he got it in his mouth and he was playing with the brother and he swallowed it and he thought he swallowed it all the way down. He didn't. And we realized after two or three days of him choking on hot dogs and stuff, like something stuck in there. Took him in, had a barium swallow test. They could see, yeah, there's something stuck there. So it, it, like three or four days later, and he's losing weight because <laughs> he didn't know what's going on. He, there was something stuck in there that was causing him to choke whenever he ate food. And so I took him to a GI doctor. GI doctor looked him over, and she's like, um, now we're going to have to go in there and take that out. Now, look, some of you that are already familiar with the ins and outs of medical stuff and surgery, it's probably no big deal. I'm like, I don't know what this is about. What's going on here? Then we're going to put a scope down him. We're going to try to pull it. She says, now it's sticking to his esophagus or whatever it was. It's sticking there. So she says, if it's sticking hard, we're not going to pull hard. We're going to stop right away, cut him open, pry it out, and take it out. And I was like, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. 
you know, I, the dad in me, I'm going, oh, my goodness. My, I think he was turning 14 or something, 13 or 14 uh, soon. And so he ended up having the surgery. It was probably the next day. That was the day of his birthday. He goes in, and they do the, I, I remember this. He's going into the, and I'm talking to anesthesiologists. He's putting them down and everything. And it was just like, whew, I was letting go. I didn't know what was going to happen. I really, this is a big deal for me. I'm like, I'm letting my son go. It was so intense for me. So intense. And I uh, even had one of the brothers at the church talking on the pastor. We're praying for Michael and everything. And I was like, thank you so much. And, and that was just like, for me, just a very kind of a very tiny, tiny compared to Jesus, of course. Very, this my pressing Gethsemane, letting him go. I don't know. Maybe he's going to be ruined for life because he has some cut here. And I don't know. And, uh, but he turned out okay. They, they pulled it out. They showed him the button, not like we kept it. And they said, happy birthday. You're done, you know. And, uh, and then a couple of the moments with my kids where, where you're dealing with something and you don't, the next day, the next week is an unknown, fearful outcome you've never experienced. Or a known outcome you just have never experienced. And that's like your Gethsemane. Or you're giving up a job and you're like, I don't know what this means next. Or you're, you're, you're going to a new place and it's, it's fearful. It's like, all right, you know, that's a Gethsemane in a way. But think about this, just because we're being pressed, just because we're at a Gethsemane, just because something is pressing, just because something is pressure, doesn't mean it's bad. It still dries us to prayer and, and helps us get grace from God. And think about this, um, some of the best things that we like come out of a press, right? Even something as simple as oranges, there's my juice. And then all of us that have 27 racks of essential oils at our house. And I can smell it on you. Not really, I can't. I had some, the other day I got a bee sting, and I'm like, where's the lavender? You know, go get the lavender, look at this. Lavender works on an itch. And I put it on there, sure enough. You know, how'd you get that? Somebody had to, they pressed, to, somehow they, pressing something hard, and you get something good from it. Even our we espresso fans, you know, there's some kind of pressure and hot water that it, it's a little different, but it, it expresses out the, better tasting part of the, the bean and there's some kind of crema or whatever, the oil in there too. Good things come from a pressing and sometimes a good thing can come out of our intense Gethsemane prayer, but at least you know how to pray during those moments.